Okay, very good. So welcome to Friday, Friday's Dhamma Talk. And Noah said this morning, for those who are here at the morning sit, payday. Friday's payday, so who knows, maybe if you're here and you're mindful and you're not wandering around in your mind, you may get a paycheck today. But you know, for sometimes even uh, monks, sometimes it's sometimes hard to keep your mind peaceful and sometimes hard to keep focused, especially when you're a young monk or a young nun. And there's all these wonderful stories. One of the ones which I remembered we talked about a lot when we were young monks was that one of those old teachers, it was was Ajahn Man, he decided to take one of his students who was always, you know, very difficult to focus his mind on a walk through the forest and then he got to the edge of a cliff and he told the monk, sit on the edge of this cliff, don't move, I'll come and see you tomorrow morning if you're still alive. He had to sit on the edge of the cliff all night to see whether he would uh, get some nice meditation. And it was also another place, which was in Laos, had something similar, but not a cliff. They had these really tall trees. And so the teacher there would take the disciples on a walk all day after breakfast until they were really exhausted. And when he got to this clearing with these very, very tall trees, they noticed that high up in those trees, there were little platforms. And on those platforms, it was only about the size of you know, these sitting mats, about that big. So you couldn't lie down on them. And there was bamboo um, ladders to get up. So the teacher would tell all these young monks, go up the ladder and sit on those platforms, which they all had to do. And then once they sat on those platforms, again, the teacher took the ladder away, I'll be back in the morning. They didn't have occupational health and safety rules in those days. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you didn't have a choice there. If you're on the edge of a cliff or you're sitting on this small um, platform really high up, it was either you really do your meditation properly or you're going to be in very big trouble. And apparently lots of uh, monks got great meditation up there. So, anyone who hasn't had any good meditation, I'm sure we can find a nice tree somewhere. What's up there? Now, what is going on there? When we heard about that as Western monks, I did tell you that place, in, it was in Wat Bawan, where we could go and stay when we were in Bangkok visiting. And they also noticed, not just the air-conditioned room, but they, the key would also open uh, onto the roof. And on the roof, some of the monks, they were really committed to be enlightened, so some of those monks decided to sit on the edge. The edge on this big building, you know, seven or eight, nine stories high, and sat on the edge there. And none of them fell off. They only did it for one morning, 
because then the other monks saw that and they confiscated the key. They were scared that the monks would be pushing themselves too much. But nevertheless, there was something about that, something about fear, which could actually make people just almost like behave when they're meditating, almost think, well, you know, you can do it. Why not focus on the breath? Why not focus on stillness, peace? Why not get your body nice and comfortable? And sometimes it's a dangerous method using fear, but sometimes it does actually work. And by working it means it does, fear does focus your attention. So, should I get the Zen stick out? And anybody who's not paying attention. Unfortunately, we can't do that anymore, and it's a good job we don't do that anymore. I've told many people this story, that when I used to go visiting Hong Kong and you know, to give talks, I enjoyed going there because the first place I used to stay was this temple, which uh, it was a Malaysian ch- Chinese who was running it there, but because it was just well positioned, many other monks would come and visit there. And so, you know, it was a nice little uh, place where you could uh, talk to so many monks of different traditions and learn all the gossip. In particular, what's happening in mainland China Buddhism. And when I was there, there was this one monk saying, this was maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, that the story of a, a Zen retreat done somewhere in mainland China, and on that retreat, like a Zen retreat, they had the master coming down with the, the Zen stick. And then one of the meditators there, a middle-aged woman, she was a bit sleepy, so she got hit on the back by the Zen master. You know what happened next? She got out her cell phone. She had it so in her. She shouldn't have those things. That's a good reason why we banned cell phones in the main hall. And she rang the police. And she called the police, and they came to the temple. This is, you know, mainland China. They came to the temple, and she complained, and they arrested the monk and took him away. That was the end of the retreat. <laughs> That's a good reason why we don't do that over here. And she was within her rights. So sometimes the fear, you can notice it is a little bit of an incentive, but sometimes if you don't know how to make use of it, sometimes it can turn to making you way too tense. It's one of the reasons why when people say, Ajahn Brahm, you say, just don't do anything, no effort. And if you listen to the teachings carefully, I say the effort is there to sit yourself on the chair or on the stool or on the cushion. Once you're sat on the cushion and you're reasonably reasonably comfortable, that should be where the effort stops. And don't use fear once you're actually sitting down. Maybe fear beforehand. Oh look, how many days are left of this retreat? Only two days left. My goodness. Only two days. What are you going to do? 
two days does give you a source of energy. But nevertheless, that source of energy that should already be developed once you're sitting on the seat. So the energy stops, or the effort, sorry, stops when you're sitting on the seat. And there you become the passenger. Or the energy, the effort to get walking on the walking meditation path. But once you're on that walking meditation path, then let it be natural. The effort should be climbing up that ladder no, two those platforms high up. But once you're up there, relax. You know, it's a strange thing, but if you put forth effort and fear, if you're sitting up on a platform so high up, you'll find that you get so tired, you'll fall off. But if you learn how to relax, then you can sit up there for hours. That's what the fear was supposed to be doing not making you tight and tense and really want to stay up there for a long time, but learn how to relax so you do stay up there a long time. The simile, which was one of the most profound, which somebody told me, it didn't come from Thailand, it didn't come from some Buddhist books, it came from an ornithologist, like a bird expert, who came to do a retreat here. He said, Ajahn Brahm, do you know, why is it that these birds, either the big cockatoos or these small little birds, they can actually go to sleep at night by roosting on the branches and uh, twigs in the trees and go fast asleep. Now if that was you or me, and you know there was no places, no cottages to stay, so I had to sleep up in a tree somewhere, imagine that. You try to go to sleep and the tree is swaying this way and that way. It may not be swaying much yet, but you'll be so afraid. My goodness, if it sways anymore, I'll fall off. But I've never seen, in all these years I've lived in the forest, a bird who's fallen off a tree in the middle of the night because of heavy winds. Even though they go fast asleep up in the trees. And this guy told me the reason why. He said, when a tree roosts on a... Sorry, well, not a tree roosts on a bird. When a bird roosts on a tree... <laughs> when a bird roosts on a tree, they put their, their feet, or whatever they call it, and their claws on the twig. And the more they relax, the more their claws close up. They really relax a lot, and then their sharp claws really dig into the wood. And in the morning, to wake up, and to get off the tree, they have to put forth effort to open their claws. And then they can fly off. But the more they relax, the more safe they are. The more their claws close up and nothing can happen to them. It's like understanding why it is a default state for birds to have claws close up and be totally safe in the trees at night so they can fall fast asleep, even though there's a big storm happening. And I thought that was a wonderful simile for meditation. The more that you relax, just the more stable you are. But we think, no, we have to be afraid, we have to really work hard, we have to do something, I'll be on the lookout. And that sort of makes, makes us tense, we never get the full benefits of meditation. When you relax to the max 
And of course I do mean the max. It means that even like thoughts can't come in the mind. It takes effort to think. And it certainly tires you out, as you all know. So I invite you to have today and tomorrow, have a lazy day. Don't do anything. And then you think, I mean, I can sleep. No, sleep is doing something. Talking, no, talking is doing something. Checking your iPhone, checking your iPhone is doing something. See if you can investigate what it must be like to do absolutely nothing. Not even processing visual images. Shut your eyes. And just be. Don't try and take notes. Don't try and analyse. Don't try and figure out what this all means. That's doing something. Imagine just what it must be like when you sit there and do absolutely nothing at all. Sometimes people find it hard to imagine. That's one of the reasons why many years ago, when I was in Singapore, it was around Waisak time, and you know, Buddhism in Singapore is quite you know, well-developed, and they have many sort of enterprising young people who are trying to bring Buddhism to different areas of Singapore life. And one of them was a Buddhist uh, like preschool, kindergarten. So they asked, what was it called again, Little Gems? I don't know what it was called. Anyway, I've been there a couple of times, but the first time I went there, they said, now can you please come and teach something to the little kiddies about Waysak? Because it's Waysak in a few days. And of course, sometimes I just, I really, sometimes I should prepare some more things instead of just turning up there and what am I supposed to be doing? But quite often, just I just trust my inse- instincts. And I sometimes get into some weird situations. If I'd have planned, I wouldn't have even turned up. I remember once just going to, um, uh, it was a, a Lions Club. You know the Lions Club is a charity club, and they wanted to sort of learn something about Buddhism. That was in Pinjara, just south of here. So an anagarical layperson, they dropped me off at the venue, which was a pub. (laughs) I don't really mind that, because usually it's a back entrance to the pubs. But then I asked and said, no, no, there's no back entrance. The only way to the room which they've hired is through the bar. And that was really sort of challenging for me. What should I do? Monks aren't supposed to be in bars. And you know what happens, you know, you go in there and somebody takes a photograph of you and then you've got to explain it. It's very embarrassing. I'm a good monk. But then there was no other way. So on the front entrance to this pub, I said, OK, there's only one way to get to this room. I've just got to go for it. I put my head down and it went really fast. Walking really, really fast through the pub. I almost made it. Almost. <laughs> I could see the, see the door of the room. And then somebody, hand on my shoulder and turned me around, Bram, what are you drinking? <laughs> I'll have an orange juice, I'll have it in there. <laughs> you get some very interesting situations in your life. <laughs> but anyway, I remember also once we were going to some ceremony uh, in, everything was an Australian of the Year or something. And it was the, they held the event 
in in the Burswood, in the Burswood like kind of convention centre, the ballroom. I've never been to Burswood before this time, and I was going with our former president, who was Sol. I thought he must know just this way around. I'm a monk, but it was really raining heavily, so we parked our car. We didn't know where we were going. It was sometimes somewhere in Burswood. You know what Burswood is really famous for? The casino. And I said, I hope we don't find our way into the casino. But you know what you're afraid of usually happens. <laughs> and so we're walking, we didn't know where we were going, walking down these passageways, and so there was a big opening and all these lights coming out. Like, ah! It was the casino. So all I could do is said, let's go this way quickly. So we managed to escape and eventually find our way to the other side uh, where the ballroom was. But it's very dangerous, as I said, being a monk. You don't know where you're really going sometimes. On another occasion, it was the invitation. And I asked other people, the other monks at the time, should I accept this? And it was the Melbourne Commonwealth Games many years ago. Remember that, those ones? And the same, they was being in attendance by Queen Elizabeth. You know Queen Elizabeth? The Queen of Australia. She was not just the Queen of England or UK. But anyway, so I received this invitation, you know, for, uh, it was a Commonwealth Day service in Sydney, you know, and also with... A, a reception with then John Howard uh, in Kiribati House. I must say the Kiribati House reception, because when you receive these um, invitations, it was an invitation, Ajahn Brahm and partner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, well, who do I know in Sydney who could actually come with me here? And it was Ajahn Sujata. So Ajahn Sujata was living in Sydney. He said, do you want to come and to this event? He said, what event? I'm very busy. I was with the Queen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so he went to see the Queen with me. But on there, you know, you have the usual uh, stuff, but they had quite a few other people at the Kiribati house. And there was one fellow, he was just standing there doing nothing. So... I thought with Ajahn Sucha, let's go and just have a conversation with him because he seems a bit bored and he, he was going a bit bored. So I can't refuse jokes. So I said, oh, you know, we two are Buddhist monks. If you lose any more hair, you can become a Buddhist monk like me. <laughs> <laughs> and then when we left, Ajahn Sujata asked me, who was that? He didn't know him. That was Prince Edward. <laughs> <laughs> he's a human being like jokes as well because there was the Queen and Prince Philip and all these other big shots and so he was like a minor role for them <laughs> and that Sujata scolded me he said you can't do that to a royal <laughs> why not but anyway also in that was an invitation to the state dinner with Queen Elizabeth in Parliament House in Canberra afterwards and I, you know that story about the state dinner. 
because you know you saw the invitation, a really beautiful invitation. You know, so it was in the presence of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles. And on that invitation, you saw dress code. <laughs> it was crazy. And the dress code was, I don't know if you ever had any of these really formal invitations. The first choice was black tie. And I thought, is that all you have to wear, just black tie? <laughs> I've never been to these state dinners before, they're really weird. <laughs> and then somebody explains to me, no, he's a black tie and all the other stuff as well, the jacket and the trousers. <laughs> but we, we don't have a black tie in the monastery, I don't think. So that was out. And the second option was military uniform. I'm a pacifist. I can't just borrow a military uniform from somewhere and rock in to the Parliament House. And the third option, the third option, I took one look at the third option and said, yes, I can go. You know what the third option was? Long dress. <laughs> Have a look, it qualifies. <laughs> so where does long dress? <laughs> and one of the most amazing things was so, you know, when I went in there, I was on the list to go in, I got stopped by security. I said, are you meant to be in here, sir? <laughs> That's what they asked. If I had my invitation, yeah, here it is. Okay, go in. And the last thing which I remember in there is, I never told them that monks can't have anything to eat in the evening. But I didn't need to. On these big occasions, someone had done their research. So the first dish was, I think, some cheddar cheese. The second dish was some other cheese, and it was really good quality stuff. I mean, they don't serve Her Majesty the Queen rubbish stuff. They don't just go to Coles and order it in. They get some of the best Australian cheese you could possibly have. And that's the most delicious cheese I've had. And, you know, talking to people and then you haven't finished your first plate of cheese and they take it away. <laughs> and they give you another bit of cheese. And the third course, the third course evening meal for a monk, two different types of cheese to begin with, and then the last uh, dish was, have a guess? Black chocolate, yeah. Dark chocolate. But it was not just ordinary dark chocolate, it had been sculpted into this beautiful, oh, I don't know, like sculpture for me to eat. Couldn't eat it because it looked too beautiful to eat. <laughs> anyway, I don't know why I'm getting into this. But anyway, sometimes when you have a bit of courage, you don't give in to fear. You go to places and do things which is appropriate. People look after you. But it's uh, strange, different. So as a life of a monk, people think, oh, being a monk or being a nun is really boring. Just in the monastery, the same chant in the morning, the same chant in the evening, <laughs> the same stuff. Sometimes you get some interesting gigs, in case you haven't been to before. There was even, um, just a couple of years ago, just before COVID, there was this invitation, and I was really excited to accept it. And it was uh, on October the 31st, 
and they were going to do a seminar on real ghost busting. And they said, well, actually, you've done that before. I said, yeah, many times. Can you please come and give us a lecture or demonstration on how Buddhists bust ghosts? I was really, I was really looking forward to that. Of course, you know what happened? COVID, and it was shut down, and couldn't go. I don't usually get disappointed, but that one I did get disappointed on, nevertheless. But anyway, uh, back to meditation. (laughs) 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 That sometimes that fear can come up. And if fear does come up in your meditation, even if it might be what you feel is a ghost. Now, I, I say this, you know, with a lot of expertise, ghosts are extremely rare, real ghosts. And most ghosts are benevolent. And those are beings which are suffering in this world. And so they, they don't want to harm you. They just want to look after you and help you, if they can, or just get some assistance from you. So a little bit of chanting, a little bit of uh, talk, is, does all they really want. But sometimes, if the ghost is causing you trouble, there was this one monk, he disrobed, some of you know him because he still lives over in Western Australia. He, he went, uh, he was in one of these monasteries in northeast of Thailand, which was noted for its ghosts. had lots of ghosts there. And when the ghost, um, one day he was meditating in his heart, meditating you know, many hours. And when you do meditate many hours, you just have the sometimes when you get tired. So he decided to have a few moments rest. He just didn't sleep. He just laid against the back of the, the wooden wall of the hut, put his legs out, and just, you know, just relaxed for a little while. And that's when he felt somebody touch his leg. And of course, he came to, he wasn't imagining, it was real. And then he thought, oh, it must be a heavenly being helping him out. Not just ghosts, a heavenly being. So, you know, he crossed his legs and started meditating again. But that was just the start. And then this being kept on coming in, you know, regularly, around the same time. And it would always come in with a bad smell. When it came in with a rotten smell of decaying, decaying flesh, he realized this wasn't a heavenly being, this was a, a ghost. And of course, he was compassionate, spread loving kindness and spread merit to this being. But this being kept on coming in. And so one day, one day, this monk put another cushion next to him. And when the ghost came in, he said, Ghost! You sit here and meditate with me, most welcome, or you get out, stop messing around. He was really firm. And that's the last time the ghost came in. Please be firm with ghosts. Give them love and kindness, but they want to mess around. Show them who's boss. Okay? (laughs) And that's what happens. Ghosts can't harm you. There's another occasion. But I always was interested, you know, if you are a meditator, you know, just, do you get afraid of ghosts? Anyway, on this occasion, 
that I was meeting, I was uh, on my walkabout, that's uh, after five years, which is a lovely opportunity as monks. You can just take all your possessions, everything you own, carrying them with you, and they soon get really light, and just walk whichever way you want to go. Almost physically, it was just so freeing. And anyway, um, I got to one monastery for the, uh, what's it called, the um, Upostada day, the Patimokha recitation. And I asked the monk there, he asked me where I was going, and I said I was walking uh, north to a place called Sokonokon, and it's about you know, 60 kilometers, two days walk. And I said, do you know any place you know, halfway, especially if there's a cave there? Cause I love caves. He said, yeah, there is, but be careful, because in that cave there's a very dangerous ghost. Many monks have become a bit crazy there. I said, yeah, where is it? And he told me the location. And when I got there, I walked there, I saw one of the villagers there, and he said, yeah, the cave is over here. It's a beautiful cave. It had a spring just outside of it, very clear, beautiful water. And in the side of the cave, the villagers had put a, 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 like a, a bench there, a really old Buddha statue there. And the villager also told me that deeper in the cave, if you go a little bit deeper in there, there's a human skeleton. So, is that why there's a ghost? The villager never told me because as soon as it started getting dark, he was out of there. He was not going to stay any longer. So there I was. A Western monk, alone, in a dark cave, no electricity, at night time. The only company was a skeleton. And I, I was actually honestly looking forward to meeting a real ghost, because this monk, Ajahn Sawat his name was, he's a good monk, and so he wouldn't sort of uh, exaggerate or, or tell deceits. So I was waiting there, meditating, and waiting, and waiting. It must have got to about 9.30 or something, I'm not quite sure, roughly about that time. I was tired. I'd been walking all day. And so I decided to lay down. I had it with the ghost. I'm not going to wait any longer. You know what it's like? Sometimes, you know, you invite loving kindness. If you want to come and say hello, please come. I always wanted to get more insights into how ghosts live. For example, what do they do during the daytime? They only come out at night time? Do ghosts get married? I mean, it must be very lonely just being by yourself all the time. What do you do? What do you eat? Do you talk to one another and go and meet one another in the dark recesses of the forest and compare notes? <laughs> but anyway, the ghost never came until I, I just lay down, hadn't fallen asleep, just lay down on the bed, and then boom! Somebody, I, I didn't uh, do the visual effects well, but it was a sound of somebody, like a human being, running towards me really fast. And then they stopped right in front of my bed. 
it didn't need to open my eyes because it was all dark anyway. And anyway, I was just fed up. I said to the ghost, look, I've been waiting for you for hours and now you decide to come get out of here. <laughs> Honestly, that's what I did. And then I just carried on and fell asleep. Never allow ghosts to actually just to treat you with disrespect. <laughs> but anyway, that was my, my own little ghost story there. That's how to treat ghosts. Okay, don't let them so decide to come when you decide to go to sleep. They can come early if they want. But anyway, you just don't, it's weird as a monk, you don't have fear. And I often wondered where that comes from. The, my preceptor, those of you who know Thailand, uh, my preceptor when I went to Thailand was a monk called uh, Somdet Buddhajan. He was like um, a scholar monk, I thought, but then all of these monks, they would have to uh, do their basic training, which included learning meditation. And he told me once that when he was a very young monk in the uh, island of Gotsamoy, that's where he grew up, and he said that uh, his teacher taught him basic meditation and he went off to meditate in one of the coconut plantations which was many in that area. And he was meditating in the coconut plantation. He said, nice meditation, a couple of hours. And when he came out of his meditation, he was surprised, but not afraid, to see coiled up in his lap was a very, very venomous snake. And he saw this little snake, or big snake, coiled up there, just enjoying a nice rest, in the warmth of this young monk's lap. And he felt absolutely zero fear. He said, this is weird. Because, you know, as a young kid, he'd been taught, you know, to run away from snakes like that because they're very, very venomous. And he said he was just sitting on there, and so he just carried on meditating, just let the snake be. And then after another five, ten minutes, the snake decided time to go and just uncoiled itself and slid away. He said the weird thing was absolutely no fear. And that's what happens when you develop your mind. Just the fear tends to disappear. But also you start to learn what is fear anyway. When you come here, what are you most afraid of in this place? Some of you are most afraid of not attaining anything, of not getting any progress in your meditation, not getting great insights. Why are people afraid of that? You have lots of time. The nice thing about being a Buddhist, if you don't get enlightened this lifetime, there's always another, many lifetimes ahead. Take it easy, don't rush. Or like I said in the beginning of this retreat, I'm glad you all understood this teaching. I said, please don't get enlightened in the first couple of days. Otherwise, you won't know what to do for the rest of the retreat. <laughs> People think that's funny, but there's something to that. But what actually is that enlightenment? Yesterday I was telling you some of the descriptions of enlightenment and how meditation 
helps you get there. Actually, it's, it's essential. It's part of the journey. But also, also to give you a feeling, what they sometimes say, a taste of enlightenment. And this was going back to a story which I interrupted myself, is when I went to that um, kindergarten class just before Waysack, and I hadn't done any preparation. And there these little kids. You know what it's like in Singapore. They go to school really early. They're four years of age, five years of age. How on earth can you teach the four-year-olds or five-year-olds or six-year-olds Four Noble Truths or Dependent Origination or, or <laughs> anything because they've got such simple minds. But one thing I do know about children is that what they can do, they have trust in uh, their, um, their parents and their teachers, their elders, and also they have got this wonderful gift of imagination, kids. And I remembered the time when I was maybe a five or six-year-old in a primary school in the UK. One of the things I would always remember, I don't know why, was when the teacher said, OK, all stand up, pretend to be a tree in the forest, put your arms out, close your eyes, you're a tree in the forest in the wind. I remember that. And it's actually, even now I can do that. I mean, I'm a tree and it's good fun. But then I decided, okay, it's Waysak. So that's when the Buddha became enlightened. So I asked all the kids, please close your eyes and imagine you're the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree in this beautiful park. If those of you who want to join in, you're most welcome. I'm going to join in. Could I get off on this? Imagine that you are the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree in this beautiful park, Bodh Gaya. You're in the shade. You've had a really good meal that morning. And it's so quiet and peaceful. There's no mosquitoes or anything to disturb you at all. You can hear the sound of the river near Angela, not so far away. And it's so tranquil, sublime, peaceful. It feels so good. More than that, just imagine each one of you. You've just become enlightened, fully enlightened. There's nothing more you need to do in this world, or ever. Done is what needed to be done. You don't have to worry about any food or lodging in the future. There's no arguments need to be settled. There's nothing which you need to do ever again. You're fully enlightened. You don't have to be concerned about any sickness or pain in your body. Sickness and pain is very easy to deal with. Once you're enlightened, your mind has such great power. And also, great endurance as well. You have that thing we call resilience. Because the body is so loose, there's no tension, no stress in your body at all. It feels just so peaceful and free. It's not something you have to achieve. It's not something like 
When you meditate in this hall, you have to sit down and let all those past and future disappear. The past and future are gone forever for you. You're perfectly awake, full of energy, full of kindness and love to all beings. It's your default state, natural state. And that particular state feels so delightful. You're just the Buddha. After all that hard work and those journeys in the past, now they're all complete. Nothing left to be fixed up or nothing left to be done. Your work is totally finished. And all you do now is just to enjoy these moments, however many they are, until the Parinirvana happens. But right now, it's peaceful. Even in the world, the world goes this way and that way according to its causes and conditions. But you, you're in that world but not part of it. You're at peace, at ease. It's like you have fixed up all those problems for you. You are at the end of the journey. No more struggle or striving is required. Now you sit down and can relax forever. Like an ultimate retirement. No worries, nothing to do, nowhere to go. At peace, not longing for anything. Nothing is missing. Whatever is added cannot increase the peace and contentment which is in your mind right now. And how do you feel when you can imagine that you're a Buddha? Just imagine it, that's fine. Fully enlightened. Can you get that taste of freedom? You don't have to attain anything anymore. You've got no emails to write. Nothing to do at all but full of energy and peace. Okay, you can open your eyes now if you wish. Gives you like a taste of bliss. When I did that, these were to three, four-year-old kids. They really got off on it. And when I opened my eyes, the teacher said, no, close your eyes again, this is good. And they were enjoying it too. It's just like a way of teaching three-year-olds, not with the normal way of teaching, of not telling them to remember things, but telling them to feel it, experience it. And the parents loved it so much. <laughs> I was supposed to be giving another meditation class in the evening, they all came. Say, can you do the same again, please? <laughs> teach us like you teach three-year-olds. <laughs> and it worked. And did, did you manage to taste a sense of freedom and peace? Nothing to do, nowhere to go. Now can you do that when you do the next meditation here? Whenever it's nine o'clock. Just use your powers of imagination, like you had very strongly as a kid, and feel free. And as you feel free, it's just like, you know, you're already in deep meditation. Just stay there and it becomes more stable and solid. 
and you enjoy yourself immensely. The whole idea of nothing to do, all that's been, all that needed to be done has been done. How hard was it, even just to get here this morning? You just go and have a shower, brush your teeth, put your clothes on, go and get your breakfast, do this and do that. There's always work to be done, every day. And imagine you don't have to work ever again. Nothing to do, you don't have to worry about going to university, about getting on the flight in time, trying to make sure you please your mum. You don't have any stress at all, anywhere. Your digestion is all lovely, there's not cold, there's no fevers, there's nothing there. Totally at ease. But aware and alert at the same time. It feels really nice, it does give you the taste of freedom. And what it's like to be an enlightened being. No worries in the whole world. You deserve it, you've all worked so hard, you've all journeyed so far in your life. It's nice that there's a beautiful ending like that. So anyway, that was the ending which, you know, I sort of, these are the sorts of things which happen when you give talks in places, you know, you've never given a talk before, or in places where, you know, that uh, uh, you wonder what on earth am I going to say. I did that also to this, there was this one uh, lady, she was a member of our Armadale group. She was a school teacher, year six, in Roldestone Primary School. And, you know, she was a really good meditator. And then after, when, just before she retired, she invited me to the school to teach her class and to teach a few of the other smaller classes. And it was a very strong Christian area. And she said that one of the reasons she invited me there was to, to meet the principal. Because the principal was telling me that when she first came here, you know, as a, she was Aussie Aussie, she was uh, a Buddhist, and then she asked if she could teach meditation in the class of you know, grade, grade six. And the principal said, well, that's, you might get into trouble there because there's lots of Christians, you know, devout Christians in this school. So they said, um, she said, okay, I won't call it meditation, I'll call it quiet time. Okay. So she started off the beginning of the year with five minutes quiet time, the beginning of the day. And she increased it to about 15 minutes by the end of the year. And the kids loved it every morning, starting off with quiet time, close your eyes, relax your body, breathe in and out, in and out, watching the breath. And, <laughs> you said, the unexpected consequences. These are six-year-olds, you know, uh, both genders were there, and sometimes they've had arguments or close to fights you know, amongst their kids. Uh, was it six, 11, 12-year-olds being 11-year-olds. And so, always she said what happened. When the atmosphere got a bit hot in the classroom and people were getting angry at each other, one kid would put their hand up, please, miss, can we have quiet time now? Okay. <laughs> and so all the kids, I sit down, close your eyes, back straight, watch your breath. 
So that solved so many incidences uh, in the classroom. And she noticed that just that degree of meditation made the kids in the class emotionally much more sensitive. It was like mindfulness was really increasing. And so they were kinder to each other. And that's why when I went there, she'd been doing this for two or three years, and the principal said, look, Ajahn Brahm, I don't know exactly how it works, but it's amazing. And I will defend her to the max. I still go to church every week, but whatever she's doing there works. So please know that I have my full support. And that was wonderful, actually, to see that. But then also, uh, you went into the very young classes in that primary school. These are the grade ones and grade twos. It's one of the first times I taught kids who were so young. And I realized you can't teach them about meditation. They're just, in that age anyway, I didn't know how to do the, even the imagining you're a Buddha. That would be just too foreign for them. So what I did do, had about 60 kids in there, and all their parents were there as well, because I just a bit, who is this dodgy monk coming to teach our kids? And I remember just using just your, um, what you might call, um, being intuitive, and just seeing how you could connect with these kids and teach them some Dhamma. So I said to the kids, okay, please, I just want to find out who you are. I said, please, can you put your hand up if you don't like eating rice pudding? Don't like eating rice pudding. And I saw these 60 kids, and about three kids put their hand up. They did not like eating rice pudding. And all the other kids were looking around. When they saw these three kids with their hands up, a few others put their hands up as well. They didn't like eating rice pudding. And then after one or two minutes, you had the whole 60 kids. <laughs> These were grade ones and grade twos. Holding their hands up, they didn't like rice pudding. Okay, now put your hands down. Now please put your hands up again if you've ever eaten rice pudding. <laughs> Only about four kids put their hands up. And all the other kids laughed together with their parents. They got it straight away. How come, you know, we just have our expectations, we follow what other people do, and because we think, oh no, these three kids don't like rice pudding, you haven't even tasted it yet. You haven't even tasted meditation, but you say, oh no, not for me. So it's a wonderful little way so if you can actually teach in ways which really make people um, understand Dhamma. So you can be, have a more open mind. You know, coming over here to Australia, there's many sort of uh, challenges you have, but you always don't have any fear, so you just see what happens. So I remember this other occasion, uh, because of the work which you know I'd done in this Cancer Support Association, it's now called Solaris, uh, with people who have difficulty with cancers. And then the meditation, sometimes the Buddhist attitudes are fantastic, have great results. But anyway, one of the people I met over there uh, at the Cancer Support Association, it was F Father Frank Sheehan. He was an Anglican um, 
I don't know what you actually called him, but he was an Anglican sort of priest. And so he was also the chaplain at Christchurch Grammar School. He's you know, one of the top um, Christian schools here in Perth. It's got a beautiful campus, if you've ever been on it, the campus, overlooking the, the Swan River in uh, Cottesloe. Cottesloe? Yeah. It's a beautiful sight. But anyway, they, Father Frank, she said, this is a very top Christian school, but um, can you come and give like a, a talk there, especially in the morning at the school assembly? I said, okay, yeah, I'll do that. So I went to Christchurch Grammar School early in the morning, and they said, please don't go into the, the hall yet. Please wait outside with the chaplain. He was one of my mates and also with the principal. So the three of us were waiting outside, and the principal said, we we'll just wait for the kids to settle down. And once they're settled down, we'll go in together, the three of us in procession. He said, there is a little shrine there of Jesus. He said, um, we, we, the two of us, we're very strong Christians, so we will bow to the shrine of Jesus. You're a Buddhist monk, you don't have to. And that's, for you those of you who don't know this story, that's why I decided to, to be um, troublesome. <laughs> In a good way. And I said to the principal, I demand my right to bow to your <laughs> statue of Jesus. <laughs> and he thought I was crazy. It's good that the chaplain knew me very well. I said, oh no, he's always like this. <laughs> oh, something like that. So he said, how come as a Buddhist you can bow to that statue of, of Jesus? And I said, I can see something in there which I respect. I don't respect all of it, otherwise I'd be a Christian. I'm a Buddhist. But there's something in there which I can respect, and that's what I'm going to bow to. And when I went inside, and after doing a little bow, gave the talk, I said, you know that many people don't understand why people bow to the Buddha statue. They think that's worshipping some lump of metal or some sort of god or idol. And I said, worship means seeing worth in something. So every time I bow to that Buddha statue, I don't bow to a, some metal or some wood. I bow to what it means for me. The first bow is always to virtue. Because that virtue, that trust, which I have to each one of you, I don't, I don't feel unsafe in this place. You could do me in very easily. You, put, you do all my food for me. I don't know what goes into my food. You can put all sorts of stuff in it. When I was getting into trouble, you know, because I ordained the nuns, you know, that bikini ordination uh, 13 years ago, the, there was a rumour going around, the Thai community here in Perth, that um, they were going to put some of this, please excuse me, but this is true, they were going to put in this love potion uh, into the pumpkin soup. <laughs> now, yeah, in northeast Thailand, you just call it yafat. You know, that supposed to be love potion. Don't believe in it, but anyway. So they told me, said, today, see that, they put love potion in it, don't take any. They're trying to get rid of you. <laughs> of course, I took extra. 
and drank it all, and nothing happened. <laughs> but anyway, sort of, but I trust everybody. I trust my own goodness. I, that trust in virtue, virtue protects you so much. So that's my first bow is to virtue. The second bow is to peace. And that whole word peace, it's not just peace in meditation, it's just peace in the community, peace in the world, like peace in Jhana Grove. Sometimes you come in here and you can feel it as soon as you walk in. It's a peaceful place. And I value that so much, it's one of our biggest assets here in Jhana Grove. You, know, you can't really measure it, but you can certainly feel it. So that's my second bow, is always to peace. And my third bow, it used to be to wisdom a few times, but I actually these days prefer compassion, kindness. Every now and again you see these wonderful acts of compassion and kindness. And when you see them, it just makes us, the whole world is so bright and beautiful. I worship that. So those are my three bows, usually. That's what I value in the Buddha statue. Virtue, peace, and compassion. When I said that to this principal, about ten days later they organized a trip from the school over in Kodoslo to Bodhinyana Monastery. And the principal is usually way too busy to actually accompany the kids, but he did come. And he came with me into the main hall in Bodhinyana Monastery. And to, together, side by side, we did these three bows to the Buddha. <laughs> he was a very staunch Christian. Why do you understand what it's for? There's no barriers there at all. <laughs> he did his wonderful bows. So those are the sorts of things. Don't be afraid. And sometimes, when you're not afraid and you understand what we're doing these for, things for, it really enhances the meditation. And even though, you know, you can trust me, that when you just uh, have some nice meditation, get nice nimitas, just go for it. You know, the, if a Catholic principal of a big school can bow three times to a Buddha statue, surely you can allow yourself to merge into a lovely nimitta. You've got nothing to lose. And allow yourself just to go that one step further into the, like the jhanas. Honestly, that was my experience that you know, sometimes you're right on the edge of the deep meditations. You know, so much you can see it over there. You say, I, w- I want to go in. You say, no, it's just too scary. I'm not, this is too powerful for me. But then it's just so nice. No, no, you don't know what might happen if you go in there. But it's so beautiful. But then, you know, w- what will happen? Oh, what the hell? <laughs> and you just go for it. I don't know, that's my character. I don't know about yours. But it's just... So close, so beautiful, so lovely. There's a case of why not? And you go for it, and you just put aside your fear. You never, ever um, uh, regret it. Those deep meditations, if you may miss your lunch, miss your breakfast, miss whatever, miss the next appointment in your business, don't worry about that. It's worth it. That's what business is there for, to give you enough money, enough confidence to be able to do these things. That spiritual path is the peak. So please never be afraid. 
you know, even have pain, sometimes the pain might come up, oh, I'm going to die. No one has ever died on one of my meditation retreats, ever. And I've done so many of them. And I'm not going to mess up my record. I'm not going to allow you to mess up my record. <laughs> no, you don't die. But you get very healthy and very inspired. Uh oh, okay. Nine o'clock. Sadhu. 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 Excellent. So I did see on the notice board there um, that uh, you're going to have visit to the cave today. Not. It's going to be tomorrow. Fire bunkers today. Goodness gracious. Okay, so if you go in the fire bunkers, if anyone is really sick, you can actually, it's a nice mausoleum in there. You can always leave your mum there. <laughs> it's not actually part of Jhana Grove, it's like the Hermit's Hill. So if you want to die over there in the bunker, it won't spoil my record because it's not in the retreat place. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sick humor. Okay, have a wonderful day.